0: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to D-Green with Amy. I'm Amy. After adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle, my hubby Rick and I lost over 130 pounds. Now I coach others on their plant-based journey. Just test voice. Let's welcome our guest.
1: Dr. Peter Rogers is a Stanford and Harvard-educated MD who, for over 30 years, has helped people optimize performance for school, sports, and health. He is an imaging guided surgeon and neuroradiologist who has written nutrition, medical, and study skill books. Please click like to help Be Green with Amy. Welcome, Dr. Peter Rogers.
0: Greetings, green warriors. Welcome to my broadcast. Dr. Rogers is having some problems, technical problems, so I haven't had him sign in yet. When he does, I will let you know. But in the meantime, I thought I've always wanted to do this. I thought it would be fun for me to talk to you about things that I do every day in this lifestyle to make it easier. And one of the things that I like to do is I love I love kitchen gadgets and I've been doing this since 2012. So I have accumulated quite a few kitchen gadgets and I'm going to show you some of them today. So this first item that I wanted to show you, and we're waiting for Dr. Rogers to come on, so we're just going to, to do this, which is pretty interesting anyway. So this is a, a silicone container, but it's different than other silicone containers because it has a base on it that it can stand up. And it also has a Ziploc kind of locking feature, so you can just simply squeeze, slide, and then you can; it won't it won't leak, and that's you can even put liquids in this, and you can microwave this, you can freeze it, you can refrigerate it. it comes in a lot of different colors, of course you can see the color <laughs> that I picked, um, and it comes in a lot of different sizes too. So it comes in this large size. I, lo- I like it because think about when you're going to fill something up, and you just w- wish that it would stand up. Okay, I think that Dr. Rogers has now come on, so maybe we'll do this another time. And I'm going to put a link into my Amazon store for you so that this way you can also access my Amazon store. Because with my Amazon store, you will be able to see all the different gadgets that I like. And I'm going to put a link to that in the comments, and then we're going to pull Dr. Uh, Rogers up for everyone. So let's get Dr. Rogers on.
2: Yeah, sorry, really? I'm, over right there. I'm ready to go now.
0: welcome. Well, you know, Dr. Rogers, I'm glad that you came. What we've been doing while you were uh, trying to sign in is I was showing people the different gadgets that I like to use in the kitchen. And I was showing them the silicone uh, container because you can heat it and refrigerate it and Ziploc it. So... I just have so many different things that I enjoy using, and that, that was one of them. And, and then you came on. So we were, we were getting entertained while you were trying to sign in. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Welcome back, I should say, right?
2: Yeah, thanks. My pleasure.
0: Yeah. So um, Dr. Rogers, is he? you said, Dr. Rogers, that if you ever want to cure disease, you have to remove what causes the disease. And in order to remove or avoid what causes a disease, you have to know what it is that causes the disease. And today, we're going to learn what most doctors, even endocrinologists don't know, the cause of something that affects millions of lives around the world, and that is diabetes. So uh, given that Dr. Rogers is such an expert on diabetes, we prepared a little diabetes quiz to challenge ourselves and to learn a thing or two. And Dr. Rogers is gonna be our go-to source for the answers. So we're gonna start off with our quiz.
1: It's time for True or False on Be Green with Amy Live. Answer true or false to Amy's questions in the comments below. And Amy will ask our guest for the expert answer
0: okay green warriors here's our first question true or false diabetes is caused or exasperated by consumption of carbohydrates I should I should make like a devil sign when I say carbohydrates right <laughs> okay type in your answer and dr Rogers <laughs> what would you like to say about that
2: yeah well carbohydrates we gotta differentiate some of the different types of carbohydrates So the best food in the world is starches. Starches are a carbohydrate. Starches are also called complex carbohydrates. Things like potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, beans, quinoa, oatmeal. And that's a great food, okay? Because a starch is a polymer of glucose wrapped in fiber. So what that means is it's low caloric density. It goes into your stomach. It stretches your stomach, provides early satisfaction of hunger, goes into your uh, small bowel then. The intestinal enzymes have to peel the fiber off so that you get a slow absorption of glucose and it functions like the equivalent of a slow release energy pill. So your blood glucose stays normal, prolonged amount of time. You satisfy your hunger with the fewest number of calories. And if you look at starch eating populations, they have the lowest incidence of diabetes. So starch protects you from diabetes. And a lot of people don't know that. Most people think starch makes it worse. No, that's wrong. Okay, then there's two other types of carbohydrates we can talk about. There is sort of your simple sugar, uh, like table sugar, or let's say glucose, your body's made to run on glucose, okay? If you don't eat glucose, your body will make it, okay? So glucose is actually good for you, but it's a little complicated. Walter Kempner used to feed his patients table sugar, just white table sugar, you know, sucrose, a combination of fructose and glucose, and he had very good results in reversing diabetes, okay? But then there's something I want to talk about. There's another type of sugar And that's fructose. Fructose is different. Small amounts of fructose coming in a fruit where it's packaged with a bunch of fiber and other nutrients, and it's gradually absorbed. Fruits are good for you. But I'm going to say this processed food with simple sugars added to it, largely sweetened by high fructose corn syrup, that's a disaster. Um, I actually have some slides I'm going to show later. Because when fructose comes into the body, it's not metabolized like other things. Glucose goes all over your body. Your muscles can store it as glycogen. Fructose just goes right to your liver. And your liver... Um, process it in such a way that it enters what's called the glycolysis pathway. But it doesn't enter at the beginning of the pathway like glucose does. It enters at the halfway point where six carbon glucose, six carbon fructose is already split into a three carbon sugar. And that's a big deal because a three carbon sugar, uh, the second half of the pathway is not tightly regulated. So what it means is When you enter, let's say a glucose, a six carbon sugar into the liver to run through glycolysis, the liver has regulatory enzymes that say, okay, run it through, we need some energy. But if you don't need energy, it won't run the glucose through the cycle. And that's relevant because fructose bypasses regulatory steps and it just runs to the end of the cycle, gets converted into pyruvate. And the liver's like, hey, why are you making all this pyruvate? We have nothing to do with it. Just make it into fat. Okay. So, High fructose corn syrup, sweetened uh, processed food, leads to obesity. It leads to fatty liver, and it's even worse than that. Not only does it lead to fatty liver, which then leads to hyperlipidemia, the fat being sent out into the blood, it also produces increased uric acid. And increased uric acid is a partial inhibitor of nitric oxide, the vasodilator of your arterial lining cells, your endothelium. And in so doing, it causes some vasoconstriction, and that has a significant effect. When when you're Normally, when you're at rest, your muscles capillaries are not all opened up because you don't need them you're not using your muscle but after you eat you'll get some you know like a nitric oxide effect so that the insulin can get into all the different muscles and be stored as glycogen but with the increase in uric acid after eating a lot of fructose those remain vasoconstricted such that you can't store the adequate glycogen as quickly as you otherwise would so that's another contribution to insulin resistance and the high fructose corn syrup increasing the risk of diabetes so so that's all relevant so so starch is the best glucose is okay fructose and fruits is good but it's a problem uh, when you get the large bolus amounts with no fiber you know you eat this energy drink it's full of high fructose corn syrup plus it's often contaminated by mercury it's often like 65 uh fructose so anyways that's not a good thing
0: yeah i'm glad that you clear that up for people as far as the difference between the carbohydrates because they kind of all get packaged into one thing and carbohydrates there are the ones that are processed are not not good for you but the fruits and vegetables are good. And also you talked about the bolus, and I I often think about an IV drip and how if the patient is on an IV drip, it just kind of drips, 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 drips into their bloodstream nice and slowly at a regulated pace, just as though if we were eating a piece of fruit because the fiber would slow it down and it would drip, 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 versus as you talked about the bolus, which would be just like an injection, where it just would shoot right through our system within seconds, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's not, I don't don't go near any of those energy drink things.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay, so here we go. Here's the question, Green Warriors. True or false, skinny people can get type 2 diabetes. Okay, type in your guess. Dr. Rogers, what's the answer?
2: Yeah, skinny people can get diabetes. You know, most type 2 diabetics are fat. But it's also true that skinny people can get diabetes. There's a couple things related to that. One is a guy by the name of Roy Taylor. He's like an MD from uh, United Kingdom, I think from England. And he's done a lot of research on this. And he talks about people having a fat threshold. Some people can store more subcutaneous fat uh, before they start developing worsening insulin resistance and diabetes. So that's one component of it. The second thing is some people have destruction of their pancreatic beta cells even though they're not that fat because I'm going to talk about that in this lecture that um, there's well-known causes of insulin resistance. And then there's not some well-known causes. What I'm getting at is there's toxic causes of insulin resistance. Number one, you can have type one diabetes. You can have type 1.5, which is like a combination of type two and type one where you have destruction of the pancreatic beta cells due to autoimmunity, especially from dairy products. Okay. Um, In addition, People are not aware of this, but aluminum is also a toxin to the pancreatic beta cells and that can destroy pancreatic beta cells. So a person can be skinny, but if they trash the pancreatic beta cells, they're going to be a type two diabetic. Um, the next thing is there's other things that can be toxic to it. There's a guy by the name of Yamashima, Tetsumori Yamashima, Japanese neuroscientist, who was given the task of figuring out why are so many Japanese becoming demented? And he came to the conclusion after decades of research, it's because of the omega-6 cooking oils and the omega-6 cooking oils. Uh, not only can lead to destruction of brain cells causing dementia, they also can lead to destruction of uh, pancreatic beta cells. It's especially through a mechanism of them being converted into hydroxynoninol, toxic aldehydes.
0: Wow, there's a lot to learn about this. And we, we also had a comment because... Um... I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Kartstig, or he, he guessed the correct answer. And then he said, I learned that from Dr. Rogers.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> i got another thing that's interesting. We'll get people from India. I used to think people from India are so healthy because I know a lot of people from India. And they're usually skinny. They usually say they're vegetarians and they look pretty healthy. But then I found they have a remarkably high incidence of diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And I'm like, why is that? So I was studying all the stuff about the diet for people from India and stuff. And then when I read the text and more, I think that's the answer right there. Because they do eat some saturated fat in the form of ghee, a butter, it's a dairy product. But they eat tons of fried food. I have a bunch of Indian friends. I ask them, what do you guys eat? And they're all telling me all this fried food. I'm like, not a good idea. I have a skinny Indian friend doctor and he had a mild cardiac infarction. He actually died and had to be defibrillated and resuscitated. And I'm like, you're skinny, you're vegetarian. How did this happen? I go, do you put oil on your foot? He goes, of course, you have to for cooking. And I'm like, no, you don't. And I think that's the answer right there.
0: Yeah. So we're not just we're not always safe just because we're skinny. And when people are a lot of times when somebody who's thin has has a heart attack or something and people are shocked and they say that he was so healthy, you know. And so we just don't know what's going on inside. But you do. <laughs> OK, uh, let's see. So. True or false, the ongoing accumulation of fat in the pancreas will eventually cause the pancreas to poop out and stop making insulin. I think you touched on that a little bit, but we can go a little bit further. Green Warriors, what's your guess, Dr. Rogers?
2: Uh, Yes. Okay, so what we're talking about here is what's called the ectopic fat theory, and this largely comes out of the work of Gerald Shellman. He won the uh, Banting Prize in 2018 as the best uh, researcher in the world for diabetes, and he actually had worked earlier with Roy Taylor. Roy Taylor came from England over to Yale University, and they worked on their research with nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And what they found was that the earliest finding that they can see to indicate insulin resistance was the accumulation of fat in the skeletal muscle. So they call that the intramyocellular, intra inside myo muscle uh, fat accumulation theory. Okay, but then what happened was. That's the earliest detectable finding in the skeletal muscle. But then you find ectopic fat progressively in several other locations. You will then tend to find it in the liver, get fatty liver. So accumulation of fat in the muscle causes postprandial uh, hyperglycemia. So after eating prolonged elevated blood sugars. But then once you get fat, accumulating in the liver, in a fatty liver, then the liver can no longer accurately regulate blood glucose level during the fasting phase, okay? So now you get fasting hyperglycemia. It'll continue to run gluconeogenesis and release glucose into the blood, causing the blood sugar to remain persistently elevated. Um, And then what I'm getting at is after the liver sort of filled up with fat, sort of the next stop on the train line is to go to the pancreas. And you start getting accumulation of fat in the pancreas. And that's a major contributor to destruction of the beta cells and loss of pancreatic function where they no longer can make insulin. So the person transitions from not only being insulin resistant, but to having a loss of insulin function, such that they're insulin dependent in the treatment of their diabetes. And I can tell you, you talk to any radiologist. they look at a CAT scan of the abdomen and in these diabetic patients, you see fatty replacement of the pancreas. Mm -hmm.
0: That is is just so, it's something that people really have to understand because they can't ignore this uh, diabetes and it just progresses and then it, it can get to the point where it can be very very damaging. So the next one is uh, true or false: most people who are overweight have problems with their insulin sensitivity. Okay, green warriors, what do you think, Dr. Rogers?
2: Yeah, usually they are going to have less insulin sensitivity than they should. They're going to have insulin resistance, but it is variable in the extent that they have it. So again, there are some people who can weigh three hundred pounds and they don't frankly test as diabetic, but in general the fatter a person is, the more likely they are to be diabetic. The more likely they are to have hyperlipidemia, the more likely they are to have a fatty liver. Um, The other thing too is diabetes and um, hypertension, they go hand in hand like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. So they tend to have both of them. And I can also tell you when I look at demented brains, 90% of the demented brains I see have hypertension plus diabetes, or at least pre-diabetes, usually full-blown diabetes. Um, So they very much go together. So what I'm saying is, doesn't guarantee you're going to have diabetes if you're fat, but it greatly increases the likelihood of it. It's not good to be fat.
0: Yeah. and That's just another reason why. Okay. True or false green warriors. Caffeine will cause glucose levels to increase. Okay. Dr. Rogers.
2: Yeah. Caffeine is basically a stress equivalent. It elevates the same hormones as stress. Uh, psychological stress increases cortisol, which raises your blood glucose. It also increases the catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline, also called epinephrine and norepinephrine. And the way to think of it is the way like a medical student learns stress is, you know, being chased by a tiger in the dark. Cause that tells you everything that stress does. You got to really quickly potentially have to climb a tree, try to fight, hide, do something. Okay. So you have to dramatically ramp up your uh, blood glucose level because you need tons of energy, maximum muscle output. So, yeah, it's going to drive up your uh, blood glucose for sure. And it does other bad things. Caffeine is one of the most overrated things. Everybody's like, oh, it's cool to drink coffee. You'll even see, you know, in a hospital on medical rounds, the attending will be drinking coffee, the fellow's drinking coffee, the senior resident, the junior resident. It's like, join the club, have a coffee like it's cool or something. No, it's stupid. OK, you're basically everybody says, well, I wish my life wasn't so stressful. I think I'll have a cup of coffee. It's stupid. It's like saying I'm stressed out. I'm going to smoke a cigarette. A stimulant. stupid. OK, it decreases your ability to sleep. It makes your depth of sleep less. It makes you a little bit hyperlipidemic, raises your blood glucose. It's not good for you. OK, and then you you'll get a little boost of energy like you would from the stress response, but you'll tend to get an afternoon lag. And my biggest concern is, you know, on a chronic basis, you're sort of wearing yourself down because simultaneously with caffeine. It causes some vasoconstriction, like to the frontal lobes, the supertentorial cortex of the brain. It almost puts you into a little bit of what, you know, I talked previously about the three parts of the brain. You got like the reptilian brain, the brain stem, if you will. And then on top of that, you got the limbic system, the mammalian brain, if you will. This is the three-part brain of McLean, also called the triune brain of McLean. And on top of that's the cerebral cortex. And what I'm saying is when you go into the stress response, you're in the mammalian instinctual fight or flight mode and it actually decreases some blood supply to your cerebral cortex, okay? So I don't like that because you're increasing glutamate transmission through your hippocampal memory neurons, increasing the metabolic rate of the most important part of your brain, your hippocampus, while you're simultaneously vasoconstricting the blood supply to it. Not good because you're, you're, you're increasing the risk of having a mismatch between metabolic rate of a neuron and blood supply. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Caffeine by itself isn't going to cause you to lose a neuron. But when you start superimposing upon it, high-fat meal, lack of sleep excessive psychological stress lots of sodium vasoconstriction glyphosate excitotoxin and a whole bunch of other ones now you're starting to get a bigger and bigger gap between your metabolic rate of your neurons and your blood supply and that gap gets too big your neurons start dying gradually they go into uh apoptosis it's uh programmed cell death to recycle themselves right
0: i'm glad that you Talked about that and expounded upon it because I get because I do a lot of coaching and I get a lot of people who say, "Gee, I'm just hearing both sides." Some people are saying, "Oh, you should drink coffee," and other people are aren't, and there's a lot of confusion out there. And you really uh, defined it very well, and I'm glad that you did that. Okay, so here's another true or false. Green warriors: Lack of sleep will cause glucose levels to increase.
2: Oh yeah, it does. It does because. Basically, it's a stress response, okay? When you have a lack of sleep, it's the same thing. You get the same hormones elevated, cortisol and catecholamines. Sleep deprivation causes increased cortisol, increased catecholamine. That means, so you get all the things I just talked about. So you really want to try to get your sleep and you want to spend time figuring out what's it going to take for you to improve your sleep because that's a major part of health. Your brain cleans itself at night while you're asleep. And that's because your neurons can't go offline in the daytime. They have to function. They have to have precise you know, ion gradients, you know, need a precise milieu around those neurons. You can't mess with that. At night, you can open up your perivascular spaces as a virchow bend, let cerebral spinal fluid rinse over the neurons. And like Victorian England, they dump out their chamber pots of waste products. The neurons do at night, and it gets rinsed away. So that's why when you wake up in the morning, you are as smart as you ever get. All your neurons are clean and fresh and ready to go, and you got the hormones just the right way to make you smart. It's sort of like, when does an animal need to be smart? An animal needs to be smart when it's hungry. So it finds some food, break fast. You break your fast after having not eaten since the previous day. So you're, you're actually primed to go out and find food. And you can take that same priming to go find food and use it to do whatever, you know, challenging intellectual task you have.
0: Yeah. So it's, As you're talking about, there's just so many factors, and I'm glad that you're talking about it because oftentimes people just say, I'm just going to adopt a whole food plant-based diet, and then if they don't see improvements or they don't see as much improvement as they would like, they really have to take a lot of these other things into consideration. Okay, next question. A uh, high glycemic carbohydrate meal will cause glucose levels to increase. I think you may have covered some of that, but I'm going to see if the Green Warriors can answer that, and you can expound upon that if you'd like.
2: Yeah, when people say you have a high glycemic index, what they're implying is your blood sugar raises rapidly. And there's a couple things relevant to that. That could be because there's a lack of fiber, such that the glucose is absorbed more quickly. Like if you just drank you know, water, just put a bunch of glucose in there. Yeah, it would spike your glucose pretty fast. The main downside of something super sweet in that sense is that the pancreas can be confused by that because there's not that many super sweet things in nature and you can have, it'll overcompensate and release too much insulin, if you will. And that can suddenly drive your blood glucose down and get rebound hypoglycemia where you feel kind of lousy immediately afterward, And then you have to go eat some more sweets and you end up with a blood glucose curve, like a roller coaster. So that's one thing that can make people get fat: rebound hypoglycemia. On the other hand, your blood sugar is normal for it to go up some after you eat a meal. I mean, that's why you ate a meal, to get more blood glucose and other nutrients, okay? But it's just, the great thing about plants is they come packaged, designed the way we're made to process food, with the fiber and the nutrients all intact. And our body's very good at dealing with what we're made to eat, which is a you know a whole food, plant-based diet. Okay, well,
0: talking about that, true or false, people who eat a lot of animal products get diabetes.
2: Well, the reality is the the more animal products people eat, the more likely they are to become diabetics because animal products do a lot of bad things um, in terms of pancreatic function. First of all, they contain a lot of saturated fat. Out of all the fat, saturated fat is the one most strongly associated with causing insulin resistance. It'll inhibit mitochondrial electron transport. It actually causes it to back up, and that causes a backup then of Krebs cycle and a backup of glycolysis. Um, It'll inhibit like complex three. So that's a major problem. If you want to see the landmark paper on this subject, you can go to, uh, it's written by Michael Brownlee. It's called Unifying Theory of Diabetic Complications. It's the best paper ever written in the history of diabetes, Unifying Theory of Diabetic Complications by Michael Brownlee. If you go to the American Diabetic Association website, you can get the paper. If you sign in, you have to sign in to see the video, but you can watch him lecture on it too. It's an an incredible paper. It's like a work of genius. It's, It's magnificent. Okay, well, anyways, you'll see him explain this mechanism of reversal of electron transport. Okay, by the way, he won the 2004 Banting Award as the best diabetes researcher in the whole world, this guy, Michael Brownlee. Trust me, he's an incredible genius. So is Gerald Shulman and Roy Taylor. I mean, their work is really impressive. They've done a service to mankind. They deserve Nobel Prizes. And here's the funny thing. No one knows about it. (laughs) Gerald Shulman's lecture is also on YouTube. You can watch that. His lecture on 2018 Banting lecture, okay? Um, I never found Roy Taylor's on there, okay? But anyways, this is known. Um, And okay, so why else does animal product cause diabetes? So number one, you got the sap fat. That's the worst, okay? Number two, you got lots of iron. Chronic iron overload over time contributes to increased oxidative stress, also increases the likelihood of diabetes. Number three, animal protein has a different amino acid composition than does plant food protein. It's got a lot more leucine, the relevance being that's more likely to activate mTOR. Things that activate mTOR are more likely to cause increased insulin resistance. So you're screwed in at least those three ways. Um, So we're not made to eat a lot of animal food. You know, I think all wild living populations eat a little bit, but usually it's a very small amount. It's not that easy to catch an animal, okay? humans we're kind of slow. We don't got big claws. Our teeth are flat. We got the same teeth as a horse, a herbivore, okay? So these wild living populations typically ate relatively small amounts of animal foods, all right? And uh, so anyways, that leads to diabetes, animal foods.
0: Yes, I'm glad that you made that clear for us. Okay, here's another one. True or false, people who eat lots of rice and potatoes get diabetes. Okay, Green Warriors, what do you think of that, Dr. Rogers? Take a look at,
2: you know, China before 1970 when they're eating rice. A billion out of a billion, they're all skinny. You can't find a fat person. The only fat person I would joke in a Bruce Lee movie out of all the extras or out of all the actors would be Bolo, you know, the other fighting guy because he's taking steroids, anabolic steroids. All the rest of them, they're all skinny. They all look the same. I lived in California. I went to Stanford for college. I never saw a fat, you know, Asian person, not one, okay? And um, I had some Asian friends. They were eating rice three times a day. It's kind of like water. It goes with everything. It's only got 1% of calories from fat. Same thing with potatoes and sweet potatoes, 1% of calories from fat. The lower the overall percent of calories from fat, the skinnier the population is. Um, And also like Roy Swank went to China like in the 1950s and they couldn't find a single person with multiple sclerosis. It's the same high fat diets that cause leaky gut and autoimmune disease. They also cause coronary artery disease. They also cause hypertension. They also cause diabetes. So people who avoid, you know, the meat and the high fat, they tend to hardly ever, if ever, get diabetes. Very good.
0: And Carsey wanted to qualify that. He said. Yes, if oil is added in animal products.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The oil makes the whole thing a lot worse. work, like the whole Tetsumori Yamashima theory. And that's what I meant by a lot of these Indian people. They could be skinny, but they might have destroyed their pancreatic beta cells.
0: Yeah. So that's why I, I think often people are, are told not to have potatoes because people put sour cream and butter on them and, or they fry them. So in the same thing with rice, as as with your Indian friends, that uh, they might eat a lot of rice but have oil and things with it. So. Okay, all right, here's something. Dream War is true or false? Diabetics are at risk for toe and foot amputations because the small blood vessel arteries in their foot gets clogged up. Hmm. True or false? Dr. Rogers?
2: Yeah, let's say you talk about a smoker, right? You got somebody smoking cigarettes. They get aortoiliac disease, proximal arterial disease, and it's relatively easy to treat because you could bypass it. You could do an aorta bifem. All right. So it's, it's easy to get. It's always easy to get inflow. It's hard to get outflow. When you plug in a graft, you need to have good outflow so the graft doesn't thrombose. And the point I'm saying is smoker uh, atherosclerosis being relatively proximal is easy to fix. But diabetic is different. Diabetics get it down in the foot and down in the foot. You're screwed because it's too small. You can't get an angioplasty balloon down there. And there's no outflow. You're going to put a bypass graft into some little tiny artery in the big toe. Gonna surround both. You can't do it. You're screwed. So they end up getting amputated.
0: Yes, which is very sad. And people who um are even pre diabetics need to think about these things because it's time to make a change. The last time you were on, uh, I think you did something and your camera went out of focus. And I think when you stood up and let your camera focus on just your chair, it went back. So, yeah, let me you, see.
2: I'll try
0: doing that. Yes, I just let the camera look at you, turn your chair to face the camera, and let's see if it'll refocus because I think last time that's what it did but I'm not sure I'm not sure how we got it it, cover it up for a second yeah okay green warriors we're gonna have another true or false question let's see if that helps well no it didn't so we'll have have a lot of good knowledge coming up
2: yeah i will cover with this for a second yeah
0: okay so green warriors here's our next question true or false Diabetes get retinopathy because the small blood vessel arteries in their eyes get clogged up. Mm. Go ahead, Dr. Rogers.
2: Yeah, that's that's the thing. They get, Lots of them go blind. And the way I look at it is all these diabetics going to get their eyes fixed and checked. People don't understand. You go to any hospital in a Western country, in the morning, there's like a river of diabetics going into that hospital, diabetics and hypertensive patients, that's the main things that are killing people in the United States, okay, they lead to myocardial infarction, they lead to stroke, because you'll hear myocardial infarction is the most common cause, well, most of them are hypertensive and diabetic, okay, um, pre-diabetic, so anyways, what I'm saying is, the same things happen in the eye, and the way I look at it is, the eye is an extension of the brain, you know, cranial nerve 2, it's, it's sort of made out of neurons, you know, the retinal neurons, all right, and so what I'm saying is anything happening in your eye is happening in your brain. So that should be taken as a warning and not like it's some joke. It's a big deal. All right. The other thing, too, is people talk about blindness, you know, and the most common causes of blindness. And they act like there's a whole bunch of different ones. Look, there's diabetic retinopathy, age-related macular degeneration. There's cataracts. There's hypertensive retinopathy. There's glaucoma. You know how I look at them? it's all kind of the same thing. They're all vascular disease for the most part. Cataracts is a little bit weird, but it's still in the same ballpark. You know, dairy products increase cataracts as well. Um, some some exposures to radiation exposure, a few other things. So what I'm saying is you want to prevent all of it. Kind of like my joke about the two bulls on the hill. Remember that one from the movie Colors with uh, Sean Penn and Robert Duvall and the uh, two bulls are up on the hill. And the young bull says to the old bull, hey, hey. Why don't we run down there and, and we can fool around with us, have sex with some of those cows down there. And the old bull says, why don't we walk down there and have sex with all of them? And the point I'm saying is what you want to do is optimize your health and you avoid all these diseases. You don't see Western medicine teaches you to think about each disease is separate. This is heart disease. This is diabetes. This is hypertension. Okay. And then you match the ill to the pill and you send a bill. That's that's Western medicine. The problem is, They tend to all have a similar cause. And if you get your act together from your diet, your health habits, avoiding toxins, you'll tend to fix all of them. And that's the smart thing to do rather than be sort of obsessing. Like so many patients, I have to go for my screening test and all this, this and that. It's sort of like you don't cure yourself with an imaging test. You cure yourself by optimizing your blood flow and your nutrient delivery and avoiding all the toxic stuff. Yeah.
0: And I'm glad that you talk about toxins, too, because we. On my channel here, we talk a lot about the whole food plant-based lifestyle, but there, there are a lot of other things that uh, other doctors don't often bring up in the conversation. And we, we're, I'm gonna have you back just so we can talk about that because it's so, such an important topic. Okay, so the next one is true or false. Diabetics are at risk for kidney disease because the small blood vessels in their kidneys filtering system gets clogged up. True or false?
2: Yeah, they are destroying blood stuff. They're destroying small vessels all over their body and their brain. They're notoriously stupid. I mean, having poor cognitive function. It's real sad. I mean, I talk to lots of them. They they come kind of they become kind of cow like, you know. Yes, I'm okay, you know. And it's it's sad because what I see happen is when they're a sort of middle age, they typically don't understand what's going on. They just say, "My diabetes is under control. It's under control. It's under control." You know, and their family say, "It's under control. It's under control." That means they're taking their pills. or sugar's not that bad, but that's not what it's all about. You really want to prevent insulin resistance because it leads to all these other problems. And so they, they, the kidney's got a lot of small arteries. It's also got these mesangial cells. And one of the things I would talk about is this comes now from the, the Michael Brownlee paper I referred to earlier, Unifying Theory of Diabetic Complications. The point is that in your skeletal muscles, you got glucose type 4 transporters to move glucose from the blood into the cell. But in other cells, like your endothelial cells, you don't have that. You have, for example, in the brain endothelial cells, your blood brain barrier, you got glucose type 1 transporters, and those just let in. Whatever glucose is in the blood, come on in. There's no requirement for insulin. The relevance is those cells become flooded with glucose when there's chronic hyperglycemia, chronic elevation of blood glucose. And you get the same effect. You call it the overnutrition effect. So the reason why saturated fat is so bad, fat in general, but saturated fat in particular, is because the skeletal muscle cannot control the rate of uptake of the fat. It it doesn't need a transporter. It comes in through what's called the flip-flop maneuver. And you flood the muscles with fat accumulation. And then they essentially sort of shut down, all right? And once they shut down, so to speak, uh, you have insulin resistance. And that blood glucose that was supposed to go into the muscles and be stored, like 80% of it, postprandial, now floats around in the blood and goes elsewhere. And what I'm saying is you can't shut down the glucose entry in the endothelial cells. And so they go into the equivalent process of overnutrition as happened from the fat in the skeletal muscle cell. And that will start to damage your uh, blood brain barrier. You can get increased blood brain barrier permeability and you get uh, an injury to those cells because it overwhelms their mitochondria. They start having reversal of electron transport. They start having increased production of superoxide anions. And that leads a whole oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is when the um, oxidants are higher than the antioxidants, which happens from injury to mitochondria and mitochondrial reversal. So what I'm saying is this is happening in your endothelial cells. It's happening in your kidneys um it's also happening in your eyes diabetic retinopathy it's happening in the nerves your leg so you get diabetic neuropathy and it also happens in your kidney diabetic nephropathy so cells that cannot protect themselves from you know continuous uptake of glucose they get damaged by it again by this overnutrition process leading to mitochondrial dysfunction so and, and then the other thing is you know a lot of these diabetics they die young from from heart attacks is pretty typical but they also have lots of strokes. It's a disaster. You basically make yourself stupid. And, and they're routinely cognitively impaired. That's, that's just almost like a given.
0: Yeah, which is sad because if they're cognitively in, uh, impaired, then they can't really be a good advocate for themselves when it comes to their health. Okay, uh, here's another one. True or false prescription medications help to manage type 2 diabetes.
2: Yeah, it's sort of the way Western medicine works. Um, I have reviewed the textbooks. I graduated first of my medical school class. I won the award, best student in the class, 333 students for pathology. I tell you that because I have gone through those books. Okay, I got 99 perfect four on my, on my resume. Not to brag, but the point is I know what's in the books. Okay, and I've gone back over them. They do not get to the point for any disease. What is the cause? How can we avoid the cause? Because usually the cause is an ongoing problem. And if you can avoid it, you can start to heal. But if you don't avoid that cause, you can never start to heal. So what I'm saying is the books are wrong. Okay. I even mentioned to you, I have spoke to a lot of endocrinologists. They are not trained in the causation of diabetes. It's amazing. I'm not kidding you. I have, I know a bunch of endocrinologists from universities. Um, I've even gone and had friends recommend me the best, endocrinologist, and I've gone over and met with this person, okay? And I started asking them questions. What do you think of the Sweeney paper? And they're like, oh, I'm not familiar with that. I said, okay, what do you think of the Hemsworth paper? They said, oh, I'm not familiar with that. I said, what do you think of the Rabinowitz paper? Oh, I'm not familiar with that. I'm like, well, what do you think of the Brownlee paper? I'm not familiar with that. They haven't read the papers. They don't know their own field, all right? So it's kind of sad, but what they know, what do they know? They know all the medications, they know the medication dosages, they know the medication side effects, they know how to titrate them, how to mix them, their half-lives, how to combine them. So they are trained in how to manage diabetes with pills. And I mean, that can help. You don't wanna get you know diabetic ketoacidosis. So they can help the patient along, but only a small amount. The patient typically doesn't change their diet significantly and they give them all this crazy stuff That's almost reminds me of something out of the Middle Ages, the Eye of Newt, and uh, stupid. You know, they'll tell them Mediterranean diet, which is a stupid diet. You know, it includes meat, alcohol, olive oil, nuts. See, all this high fat food, that's not going to help a diabetic. And even allow sweets. It's stupid. The Mediterranean diet is stupid. It's a diet for chumps. And the way I see the Mediterranean diet, it's a way you trick people. I jokingly called it the Antichrist of nutrition to promise salvation, but not provide any help because. People try it and they think I tried diet, it didn't work, and then they give up. Well, I gotta take all these pills. Instead of going low-fat, low-sodium vegan, and you've got a very good chance to cure yourself. Uh, Roy Taylor, he had tons of his patients cured, and Roy Taylor specifically said, diabetes is a disease of overnutrition with fat, and when the dietary fat is reduced, most patients will be cured, okay? So that's the Roy Taylor take on diabetes. Um, it's especially saturated fat from the animal foods that makes it much worse and elevates mTOR more and all that stuff and contains iron, leading to iron overload with the secondary effects that all contribute to it. But um,
0: Yeah, absolutely. And maybe you can expound upon the saturated fats in animal foods because oftentimes people pick certain animal foods to say, well, this one is low fat or this one is healthy.
2: They all stink. They're all about the same. I know typical thing is people say, what about fish? Fish is good for you. And look at salmon, salmon's 50-50, 50% fat, 50% protein. There is no carbohydrate in animal foods other than milk. Okay, so that's still very high in fat, lots of saturated fat. Saturated fat is a little worse than the other types of fat because in the process of beta oxidation of the fats, you're gonna end up seeing, sending more electron carriers to electron transport, more FADH2s versus if you already have um, the double bonds, you don't, it, the way it's processed in beta oxidation, you don't make quite as many FADH2s per molecule, but you're still it's still not good for you. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in low-fat. That's a whole other topic to get into the details of it, but I think there are good reasons why that's a good path.
0: Okay, very good. So let's see. True or false, the brain has glucose receptors that can't function effectively when glucose is blocked. True or false? Okay.
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting point because like I said earlier, all the medical textbooks are wrong. Okay. My kids are grown up. My wife works. I don't got much to do. I sit around reading. Okay. And I read through these books and I'm like, holy crap, these books are wrong. They're wrong. And they're in fact, stupid on all the major causes of disease. You read the autoimmune chapter. There's nothing about leaky gut, the most important cause. And all the secondary causes that I'm familiar with, I don't see them typically listed in the chapter. Okay. You read about coronary artery disease. There's no mention of all the pioneers in atherosclerosis research. Okay, you read about hypertension and they say some stupid comment, 90 95%, depending on the book, is essential hypertension, meaning that the cause is unknown. Then um, the other thing, now, is pretend genetics is such a big deal. And the reason I go through all that is I actually see it as uh, a completely ridiculous book. Okay, when I was young, I honored those books. I'm like, wow, I want to learn. I want to be a great doctor. I got to memorize this book backwards and forwards. And now I'm like, those books are a joke. And the reason I say that is if you tell the reader that this disease is genetic, Nothing you can do about your genes. If you tell them that the cause is unknown, you know, idiopathic means the doctor's an idiot and the patient's pathetic. There's nothing you can do. So you got to take our pill. Thank you very much. You know, smiling all the way to the bank versus if you say, well, gee, this population has zero diabetes and this one has lots of diabetes. What's the difference? Okay, this one eats meat and processed food. This one doesn't. Maybe we should eat the way the one that doesn't have it has it. Okay, so now getting back to the brain receptor. So everybody says, oh, the brain has glucose type one receptors across the blood-brain barrier. Okay, then it has glucose type three uh, receptors in the neurons themselves, and isn't that wonderful? So that if they just take up glucose, insulin's not needed. But that's the problem. It's wrong. If when you actually look at the data on people who studied brain neurons, especially let's say in our memory center, the hippocampus, and in the uh, substantia nigra, or the midbrain with Parkinson's disease. They've got glucose type 4 transporters, just like in the muscle. They're dependent on insulin. And that's a big deal because those brain cells can't get enough glucose inside of them. And the brain cells, their biochemistry is not designed to metabolize fat. They can handle ketones, but they really can't handle beta oxidation of your fatty acids. And it's relevant because what ends up happening, this ends up causing brain damage. Because their glucose type 4 transporters cannot bring in glucose. I'm going to show a slide of this later. Because they can't bring in glucose rapidly enough to meet their energy demands when things are ramped up. Brain cells have to go from zero to 100 miles an hour real fast. Imagine you're, you know, why do we have a brain? The purpose of a brain is to walk down a path in a forest or a jungle and to survive, okay? And we're just walking along. We could be having a casual conversation. Maybe we're bird watching or something. Everything is fine. But all of a sudden, there's three coyotes. Oh, shit, they're walking towards me. You know, am I going to have to fight? Should I climb a tree? Should I stand my ground? What should I do? You got to ramp up really fast, all right? So the point is, in order to do that, there's a mechanism whereby. You can take in more glucose into the cell using these glucose type four transporters. In addition, there's something called the mitochondria-associated membranes, the MAMs, in a connection between the endoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria, whereby the endoplasmic reticulum starts pumping in calcium into the mitochondria in the mitochondria matrix because that upregulates it increases the enzymes of Krebs cycle, so you can really start fast, start cranking out more energy. And what I'm saying is, our ancestors didn't have to deal with high fat processed food diets. Okay. So the system is not that well coordinated with the glucose type four receptors. So the endoplasmic reticulum says, Hey, you need more calcium, need more calcium, need more calcium. Where's the ATP? Where's the energy production, but it can't happen because the glucose isn't coming in. So the endoplasmic reticulum keeps pushing calcium into that mitochondria and that'll precipitate it when you overload it with calcium and that'll cause that brain cell to die. And so Mm -hmm. that's another reason why diabetics can't handle intellectual rapid upregulation and challenge um so i'll I'll show the picture of it later but that's kind of an interesting mechanism of cognitive impairment and diabetes
0: okay true or false (laughs) excessive stress elevates cortisol and well you'll have to help me pronounce it catecholamines causing increased blood glucose levels and decreased insulin sensitivity
2: Yep. So excessive psychological stress, it contributes to insulin resistance. And there's even a brain tumor. It's really rare, but you can get a pituitary brain tumor that produces increased cortisol and get something called cushion syndrome where they get increased diabetes. But yeah, cortisol, its whole purpose is to raise your blood glucose. So if you got that happening, excuse me, it's going to be hard to get your blood glucose under control. Yeah.
0: Okay. So here's something true or false. If you are on any prescription medications and you adopt a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet, you should work with your physician because this lifestyle is so effective that you could become over-medicated.
2: Yeah, it's a big deal, especially for diabetes and also for hypertension. And to a lesser extent, sometimes with uh, anticoagulation, Coumadin or something. But, you know, you look at uh, Kempner's results, Kempner back in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. He'd have patients with systolic blood pressures in the 200s, 230, and they would come down to normal, you know, 120, all right? So it has a big effect. He was also lowering dietary sodium quite a bit, but it can have a tremendous effect to lower blood pressure, and it'll also make the person much more insulin sensitive. So if they're taking insulin based on their old diet and they continue the same dosage when they switch to a low-fat plant-based diet, they might drop their blood sugar too low, you know, and get uh, hypoglycemic coma, and that can be dangerous if you're driving or something. So yeah. They need to work with their doctors and gradually titrate these things.
0: Okay, and we're going to have our final question for true or false, and then you're going to do a presentation. And we're having questions coming in from the viewers, and we'll be taking those uh, toward the end of the broadcast. So true or false, diabetics should be fat counting, not carb counting.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's the point that it's sort of like, to somebody who's actually read the literature, it's obvious that fat is the problem. Okay, the more fat people eat, the more diabetic they are. But for some bizarre reason, this is not known in conventional medicine. Okay, I had a friend, he's doing an endocrine fellowship, and he's telling me all this stuff about carb counting and how they, they fix their plate, what goes on what part of their plate. And it's just like nonsense. Nah, just eat starch, eat fruits, and eat uh eat your greens. Okay. <laughs> Things will be pretty good for you. So fat's the main thing to be concerned about. Uh, not the carbs, and then and then the other secondary things I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more. You know, things like avoid the cooking oils. Okay, that's a problem. And I would do what I can to avoid aluminum. For example, aluminum is toxic to the pancreas. So I would have you know a water filter. Okay, um, I would not use deodorant. I think deodorant is like the stupidest thing. We talked about that last time, didn't we? I think we did. Yes,
0: we did. But it always bears repeating because, and and sometimes we'll get new new people on. This broadcast that may not have had a chance to see the other one. Okay, well, I'm done with my true or false game, and now Dr. Rogers is going to pull up his uh, presentation. Yeah,
2: let, me, let me get my slides going here. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Here we go.
0: While while he's doing that, I'm going to just see if there was I thought there was some a comment. Let's see. Oh. So a card, card says, Dr. Rogers has completely changed my view of medicine. Now I question all advice in my mind, my doctor gives me. Eating plants has changed my view and given me more power over my life. Thank you, Dr. Rogers. That was nice. Yeah, should, that's very nice, yes. I just wanted to, to bring that up and let's see if we had any other. So it sounds like he, he's a big fan. And so Green Warriors, we're going to be taking your questions in a little bit after this presentation, and if you want to type them in the chat, I will hold them and refer to them at the end, and I'll try and take them in the order that I receive them. So if you do it now, you probably have a better chance of me asking that question uh, than later. And today we're, of course, talking about diabetes, and there's just so much more, a lot of the plant-based doctors are talking about it, but there's just so much more to it than um, just nutrition, and that's important to know. And Dr. Rogers has a wonderful presentation which shows some some visuals too, where the, the body is just a miraculous healing machine. And if you let it heal and you give it the chance, it, it can. Um, but not, not always, because sometimes, it might be too late for things. So try the best that you can for adopting the whole food plant-based lifestyle, but also learn about the other things that are important as well. For example, as Dr. Rogers was talking about earlier, we have things that are important to consider, which are toxins and, and things that we're exposed to on a daily basis. And he's going to be coming back on, in another show to go in more detail about that but as he talked about aluminum, for example, people might take aluminum foil and decide to roast vegetables on it. And which is you would think, I mean, I was taught to do that. So now I take parchment paper instead, or I take a silicone mat. And I use that to roast the uh, vegetables. Sometimes people will make something like a casserole and then they cover it up with aluminum foil and aluminum foil is nice because it could it you can conform it to the edges of the casserole dish so what i like to do if, if i if i find that i want to use foil is i'll take a piece of parchment paper and put it over the casserole dish and then put the foil on top of it so that the foil isn't coming in contact with my food and and that's another way that you can overcome that but also that there are other environmental toxins that sometimes you can get exposed to just by touching it as and as dr rogers was talking about the aluminum again with that comes in deodorants and people will put that um in their armpits and women will shave and it'll help absorb things think about how they have certain medications that you can just put on your skin and it will get absorbed transdermally into your bloodstream well think about a lot of things that we're touching that the same thing can happen. Did you have your? Uh,
2: yeah, I got my slides. I just don't know how. I don't know how to share my screen yet.
0: Okay. So um, if you went to the present mode, click on present, and okay. then and then it's share your screen. Okay. Your screen. Got it. Share okay. screen. And then I will okay. see that soon. So if you have any questions for Dr. Rogers, please type it in the comments, and we will be bringing that up shortly. And uh, it's going to ask you which, which. Yeah, let me get the
2: slideshow. I'll start with my slideshow. Yeah. And now I got to go back into this. I'm in it. And now I'm going so to.
0: Is, do you have diabetes or do you know I mean- someone that does have diabetes? And what, do you, what has been the challenge that you have faced? If you want to type that in the comments. And also, I'm curious to know how many of our viewers today have adopted a whole food plant based lifestyle. And and how long has it been since you first adopted it? I would like to see that in the chat to see because I'd like to get an idea of what you uh, have. Can you see my slide now? Yeah, we can. All right. Here we go.
2: These are the people called the Nauru and they're located, I think, near Australia, about 7000 people. You can take a look how they looked in 1914, you know, skinny, healthy looking people. And then what happened is their land was very profitable for phosphate mining. And so these big companies from Western uh, countries came in and started uh, doing phosphate mining and so, and then just fed them with processed food and alcohol. So here's the phosphate mining, and they trashed all their farmland, and now they're the fattest people in the world. The average weight's like 230. They're off the charts, obese and diabetic. And what I'm saying is, America's not that far behind. And you know, I think we're headed towards ending up like Easter Island. Everybody's fat, diabetic, cognitively impaired, infertile. And that's no joke. Okay. MTOR, by the way, comes from uh, the island of Rapa Nui. And uh, that's what uh, Easter Island was with those statues there. And also, like I said, I talked to diabetic doctors and they did not know. They haven't read the papers. I know a bunch of them. I haven't met a single one that's ever discussed a paper with me. Um, here's the next thing to know. This is um, a painting of Cicero. Cicero was, a, was the greatest of all Romans, a great orator. And one of his famous quotes is, to not know what happened before you were born is to forever remain a child, okay? Aristotle, if you want to understand something, then study how it was made, where it comes from. And I show you this because if you want to understand diabetes, read the research. It goes back to the Sweeney paper in 1927. He took a bunch of medical students, fed them a high-fat diet, and they all became diabetic based on the blood test diagnosis, okay? Developed insulin resistance. I'll show you a little bit of epidemiology. Epidemiology, a lot of times, is a good way to clarify a question. So this is northern Mexico. This is the Sierra Madre Mountains in an area called Copper Canyon. There's a population there called Tarahumara, meaning like fleet runners, fleet of foot. And then they were combined previously with a population called Pima. And the Pima Indians and the Tarahumara had a tremendous amount in common But after the Mexican-American War, 1848, the Pima were absorbed into what is now Arizona. And they eat the standard American diet, you know, high fat, westernized diet with meat processed food and oils. Here's how the Pima looked, you know, back in the 1800s. They're skinny, they're physically fit, athletic looking guys. You know, it looks like a wrestling team, a college wrestling team. Now here's how the Pima look They're all fat and sick, you know, they're fatter and sicker than the average American. They're a disaster. So these are all the scars they get, you know, open heart surgery, cabbage, coronary bypass grass, tons of gallbladder surgery, appendectomies, sigmoid diverticulitis, resections, lots of amputations, below knee amputation for diabetes. Tower the they're world famous ultramarathoners. In fact, Nathan Pritikin patterned his diet after the Tower Hamada. He ate a lot of corn, beans, squash, rarely a little bit of meat because they're so healthy. Okay. They don't got any coronary disease or hypertension. Nobody's fat. Um, these are sort of conceptual stages, sort of what I was talking about. I, I actually refined it a little bit, but this is the basic idea, you know, that I learned from Shellman and Roy Taylor, uh, where fat goes. Besides going to the pancreas, it also goes into the arteries. It also goes into the eyes, the kidneys, et cetera. Okay. Um, and here's a good way to visualize it. Uh, In the skeletal muscle, you first take up fat, and that causes insulin resistance in the the skeletal muscle. So normally, 80% of your blood glucose from a meal should go to the skeletal muscle and be stored as glycogen. Instead, it can't take up the glucose because the fat is damaging the mitochondria, and it shuts down due to what's called overnutrition. The high blood glucose persists, and you end up taking it up into the liver, and the liver progressively becomes fatty. And by the way, fatty liver is so common, the majority of Americans in middle age and older have fatty livers. Uh, I see it all day long every day. Okay, then eventually the fat starts accumulating in the pancreas, and you get fatty atrophy, fatty replacement of the pancreas. And then the cells that cannot uh, block glucose from coming in when there is hyperglycemia, high blood glucose in the blood, they all get damaged. Retinopathy in the eyes, um, kidney failure, diabetic nephropathy, um, diabetic neuropathy to the foot, microvascularopathy to the foot, no outflow the bypass to, they get amputated. So diabetes is a disaster of a disease. And this is what I meant about the flip-flop maneuver. Fats are able to get into the skeletal muscle relatively easily. They can flip-flop across the plasma membrane of the skeletal muscle. They first enter the outer leaflet. They can become protonated, you know, lose a charge, enough that they can get into that outer leaflet. Then they flip-flop to the inner leaflet. Then they move into the skeletal muscle cytoplasm. So what matters is how much fat there is in your blood. Okay? They tried blocking all the fatty transporters, and it didn't make any difference. What mattered was how much fat the person ate. Okay, here's just a diagram showing what's happened, what's happening with fructose. Um, and the point I made about this, here's glucose, here's fructose. I was trying to show that it's entering at the three-carbon phase. I actually don't have that good of a glucose cycle on here. But the point I'm saying is glucose is tightly regulated at this step right here, phosphofructokinase, but fructose bypasses all of that. It'll actually come in a aldehyde three faucet, whereas a three carbon uh, part of glycolysis, the second half of glycolysis. So it's not regulated, it just zoop, goes right down to pyruvate, gets converted to acetyl CoA, the two carbon units to make into fats, and you get a fatty liver. And then you also crank out more uric acid and the uric acid causes insulin resistance. So it's, you don't want to eat any of that processed food sweetened with uric acid. It also often is contaminated with mercury. It's bad. Okay, this is what I was talking about, how it causes insulin resistance, because the uric acid leads to decreased nitric oxide production with resultant vasoconstriction constriction in the muscles. So you can't get your uh, postprandial glucose into the muscle and you get persistent high blood glucose, persistent hyperglycemia. Okay, also diabetics, they often have sleep apnea, very common. A lot of people have sleep apnea even when they're they're barely pre-diabetic. And it can be a big deal. It's just one more thing adding on to um, oxygen deprivation at night. You know, I've seen patients when they do these sleep studies with sleep apnea dropping their blood glucose levels into the 60s. Okay, so it's a recipe for making people stupid. You know, lots of these sleep apnea patients are pretty stupid. You try talking to them, they're falling asleep, they can't finish a sentence, and, you know, it's sad. The other thing they found out is now they've got continuous glucose monitors, and they can check the person's blood glucose all through the day or the night. It used to be a diabetic would just stick their finger, you know, about three times a day, twice a day, once a day. Nowadays, though, and they didn't know what their blood glucose was at night. They found that a lot of them have significant hypoglycemia at night. Well, what a disaster. You got a you know, somebody with sleep apnea dropping their oxygen at night, and they're simultaneously dropping their glucose at night. They could deprive those neurons of adequate glucose and oxygen and potentially, you know, go into apoptosis, programmed cell death, recycling of the neuron. Okay, here's a normal capillary, let's say, in the brain. Um typical capillary is about seven micron. I'm sorry, it's about five microns in diameter. Typical red blood cells about uh seven microns in diameter. So the RBC is a little bit bigger. It has to fold back on itself to pass through. So the RBCs are traveling through the capillary here. Um this, by the way, is a smooth muscle cells, vascular smooth muscle cells around the arteries and capillaries. Here is you can call them pericytes around the capillary, same same thing essentially. This is the endothelial basement membrane. These are the endothelials themselves, they're spindle-shaped, that's the nucleus. They're orientated along the long axis of the vessel. All right, these blue circles are the oxygen passing from the red blood cells into the neuron to supply the tissue with energy in any tissue. All right, that's how it's supposed to work. Now let's take a look at a diabetic. In a diabetic, they'll get hypertrophy of the endothelial basement membrane. And when this becomes thickened, they're less able to deliver glucose to the tissue, to the neuron in this case. You'll also get hypertrophy of the smooth muscle cells. You'll also get some scarring or fibrosis you know, accumulation of collagen in the wall of the vessel, all of these things contribute to less oxygen being delivered. You'll get some atherosclerotic plaque inside the artery. It'll become subintimal, but all of these things are obstacles to delivering oxygen and glucose to the tissue. And again, the more you have a deprivation of the neuron relative to its metabolic rate of oxygen and glucose delivery, the higher risk it is to just go into apoptosis, programmed cell death, because it can't meet its metabolic needs. Okay, glucose. Comes into a cell, it then gets phosphorylated by hexokinase or glucokinase. That phosphorylation puts a charge on it, so it can't then escape out through the plasma membrane. Runs through glycolysis in the cytoplasm, then it's converted to pyruvate. This goes into the mitochondria, and then it goes through something called Krebs cycle, also called the tricarboxylic acid cycle or the citric acid cycle. And then it produces electron carriers that go to electron transport on the inner mitochondrial membrane, and that's where ATP is made. And that's how energy on life is in life is made. Okay, here's just a picture of a mitochondria. There's the outer mitochondrial membrane, usually abbreviated OMM. Here's the inner mitochondrial membrane here, typically abbreviated IMM. There's a space between the inner and the outer membranes of the mitochondria. And that's called the IMS, the intramembranous space. This is where the protons are pumped. Okay, then here is the center of the mitochondria. That's called the mitochondrial matrix. Um, and that's where Krebs cycle runs. So here's the electron transport chain again. And these electron uh, carriers are like a fireman bucket brigade, and they pass electrons downhill until they get to oxygen. Oxygen has the highest electronegativity, meaning it has the strongest desire to grab the electrons. And as they run down the cell, you can think of it almost being like water passing down a hill. They can run a mill wheel, okay? But the energy that's produced by handing off these electrons towards progressively stronger grabbers of electrons enables protons to be pumped from the mitochondrial matrix into the intramembranous space. And now you've almost got the equivalent of pressurized air, a powerful system. And the gradient is huge, 160 millivolts, negative 160 millivolts. It's the biggest gradient I'm aware of in the body. Okay, so anyways, the protons can then be harvested. They are taken through ATP synthase. And the power, like I said, it's like pressurized air. When you let that pressurized air out, um, it'll run this enzyme here called ATP synthase, and make it spin in a circle, and it'll phosphorylate ADP, and so it's the proton gradient that makes it all possible, and what we're going to see in a moment is saturated fat's going to block this electron transport, and the whole thing's going to go backwards. When it starts going backwards, it starts dropping electrons down to the oxygen in the matrix, producing these reactive oxygen species called superoxide. It's an anion with a negative charge. It's a free radical because it has an electron that's in an unpa- it's unpaired electron, in it's outer orbital, Okay, and a few of them, the mitochondria can handle it. It'll neutralize them with superoxide dismutase, not a big deal. That normally happens a little bit. But when the process becomes more extensive than that, as it does with excessive saturated fat and with some other mitochondrial inhibitors, this can become a real problem. You produce too many of these, and they start uh, reacting with things and causing a lot of damage. Okay, so I just want to show you, this is a picture of all the different things that inhibit the mitochondria. And, you know, if we counted them all up, I haven't counted them, but I'll bet you it's about 25 or something. And I mentioned this because, you know, I was very interested in biochemistry. uh, And I was like, first in my class in biochemistry, like one of the best students in the whole United States in biochemistry when I was in medical school. And I mentioned this because I own multiple biochemistry books. None of this is in the books. None of this is in the books. Go to the store, look at the the, the medical bookstore, look at all the mitochondria, look at all the biochemistry books. You won't find any of this in there. But then I start reading through the papers about mitochondrial inhibitors, mitochondrial dysfunction, and it's all right there. So what I'm saying is the useful information is not in the textbooks. I talk to medical students. They never know anything, okay? You ask a medical student, go find a medical student if you know one. Start asking them, what causes heart disease? What causes hypertension? What causes diabetes? They won't be able to answer a single question. What inhibits the mitochondria? They won't know the answer to a single question. I've talked to tons of them over the years. All right, so anyways, these are common things. Fat, fat inhibits complex three. How about atracine? That's sprayed on all the corn, non-organic corn. That inhibits complex three. How about F minus? That's in your water, okay? Supposedly to help your teeth, but it really doesn't do much for your teeth. It's uh, something you don't really want in your water, okay? Um, lead is often a contaminant in a lot of foods. Here's your omega-6 cooking oils leading to hydroxy non We talked about that. H&E, the toxic aldehyde, that inhibits ATP synthase. Okay, cadmium is complicating a lot of foods. It's in brake pads. That's why I won't sit at a sidewalk cafe next to a busy street. phosphate inhibits complex two okay that's on sprayed on all your soy non-organic soy i would never eat it things with preservatives those are often antifungals to prevent mold from growing in some personal care product or a food they inhibit electron transport as well not good okay here it is in some of these anesthetics like propofol for example when i went for uh, my colonoscopy many years ago because my other died, my mother died of colon cancer i refused uh sedation because i didn't want this to potentially be affecting my brain cells. i mean something that makes you not remember the test how do you know your memory is going to come back like it was before? I'd be a little nervous about that. I got teased and mocked about it, but I knew I was right. I was fine. Okay, what else here? Uh, metformin. I got all these doctors even saying, oh, do you think metformin's good? I heard it's good for longevity. I'm like, you know, do you think I'm stupid? I'm going to take a pill that inhibits my, my mitochondria. Are you crazy. Statins, they also inhibit, uh, they decrease the function of coenzyme Q. I wouldn't take one. I can control my blood glucose just fine. My total cholesterol typically varies between about 90 to 120, just from the diet. I don't take any pills, not a single one. I'm 60 years old, just about 60 years old. It's fine. Okay, PFOA, that's like from the non stoke cookware. They can put stuff in your food that's toxic to your mitochondria. And each one of these things will probably have a relatively mild amount of toxicity. But you can see my point. When you add them all up, it could be a real problem. A lot of these antibiotics, they're toxic to your mitochondria a lot of your estrogenics are toxic to your mitochondria like bpa bisphenol a and the other bisphenol equivalents okay bps for example okay pcbs you know that's another thing in a lot of fish all right so anyway i think you get my point alcohol is toxic to your mitochondria inhibits this uh pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme same with traumatic brain injury all right so anyways, there's a lot of things so here's basically the, the main diet here's the western diet american the high fat diet they get lots of atherosclerosis in the coronaries, most common cause of death is heart attack. They also with all that fat have ischemic tissues, lack of blood supply to their tissues, get a lot of cancer. Okay, then you go to the East Asia, you know, Japan, Korea, China. They were eating way too much sodium, especially Japan eating over like 12 grams a day. You should normally only have something like 200 to 500 milligrams. And because of that, they would get high blood pressure and they have a lot of strokes, but because they're eating a really low fat diet and they also smoked a lot of cigarettes, which of course made it worse because they ate a low fat diet, um, and they ate a lot of vegetables. They didn't get that much cancer. Uh, they don't get hardly any diabetes with a low fat. Um, South Asians, like people from India, they're the ones that I thought were a lot healthier than they actually are. And I think it's because they eat so much fried food, a lot of these oils. And so, because of that, and they still eat some dairy, you know, with the ghee and all that, they still have a surprising high incidence of diabetes. And I think it's because of that oil, the HE from frying it. All right, anyways, who's the best off? Low fat, low sodium vegans. They're low in everything, they avoid all these problems. Yeah, and you can tell why corporate America don't want people eating this way. Nobody makes money off a low-fat vegan, okay? I don't take any pills. I don't need to ever go to a doctor. I haven't been to a dentist in over 25 years. My teeth are fine. Okay, what are you trying to protect? You're trying to protect your hippocampus. There's your memory center right there in the brain. It is hypersensitive to oxygen and glucose deprivation. It runs through tons and tons of energy. So it does not want to be denied its oxygen and glucose. Here's a typical neuron. Cell body's up here with all the dendrites. So this is where it receives a message, and then it sends a message by conducting an electronical impulse through its axon. The axon then connects to what's called a synaptic terminal or the axon terminal. This is run by sodium channels, but when you get to the axon terminal, you get a calcium, like a voltage-gated calcium channel, and that lets calcium come in. Calcium is, you know, the old saying in the Lord of the Rings, one uh, ring to rule them all. This is one uh, ion to rule them all. When calcium goes up, whatever's the main thing that cell does, it does it. It's like flicking on a light switch. Okay, so when calcium goes up in the synaptic terminal, it causes these neurotransmitter vesicles to then merge with the plasma membrane uh, of the synapse. And then this is a synaptic cleft between the two neurons, the presynaptic and the postsynaptic neuron. This neurotransmitter will diffuse across the cleft, interact with the postsynaptic neuron, and exert an effect. Um, Typically, it's going to be glutamate. That's like 80% of them. Okay, here's how a cell does its business. It establishes a negative gradient. It's like a battery. It's how a cell generates energy for itself. And like a battery, it has a charge uh, differential across a membrane. So you've got positive charges on the outside of the cells. Let's just say this is a brain cell. Okay, you got a negative charge inside. In brain cells, they use two-thirds of their energy to run this pump. This is potassium-sodium-ATP pump. And the K comes for collium, the Latin for potassium, and the N for natrium, Latin for sodium. Okay? And the reason they put so much energy into running this pump is they're pumping out more positive charges, three sodiums, and only pumping in two positive charges, two potassium so that leads to a net negative charge inside the cell then this gradient of charge so that's an electrical gradient and of chemical concentrations the sodium gradient, is a factor of 10 you got 10 times more sodium outside the cell than inside the cell movement of sodium can be coupled to movement of other things so this is called a knockout exchanger na for sodium ca for calcium and you can let sodium come into the cell and use that to pump out calcium and That's how you get calcium out of the cytoplasm, What you need to do. You have to be able to shut the cell off. After the cell does something, you want to turn things off. So when cytoplasm calcium goes up, neurotransmitters release, like glutamate. Glue is an abbreviation for glutamate, and that'll go out across the cleft. So you need to maintain these gradients, the electrical gradient and the chemical concentration differential in order for the cell to get work done and do what it's supposed to do for you to think this neuron has to be able to do this. Okay, and now here I'm showing you a little more complicated. Normal cytoplasm concentration of calcium is about 100 nanomolar, so that's 15,000 times lower than what it is outside the cell. So if you're going to pump something out, you're going to have to use energy to do it because you can't pump against a gradient unless you've got energy making it possible. The other way that a cell can lower the amount of calcium in the cytoplasm is they can pump it into the endoplasmic reticulum. The endoplasmic reticulum in muscles is called sarcoplasm, but we'll just and so the enzyme to pump calcium into either the sarcoplasm or in the endoplasmic reticulum is called circa. Sarcoplasm, endoplasmic reticulum, calcium, ATPase. And this is a very important way that calcium is pumped out of that cytoplasm. Okay. So like I was saying, when calcium goes up in a cell, let's say it goes up tenfold, you will get neurotransmitter release in a typical neuron. In the pineal gland, which makes melatonin for sleep, it'll release melatonin. In a mast cell of the immune system, it'll release histamine. In a pancreas cell, it'll release insulin. In all the muscle cells, they will contract. All right. So that's how cells do their work. They let calcium in and then they do whatever they have to do. And then as soon as that, they, what they've done, the task is completed, then they pump that calcium out and they can do it all over again if they need to. Okay, here's the, let's say calcium comes into this post, the presynaptic terminal, glutamate, the neurotransmitter vesicles merge with the plasma membrane, glutamate diffuses across the cleft. It'll interact with the postsynaptic receptor, typically an AMPA receptor, let some sodium in, that'll depolarize the cell, making this charge go higher, more positive, once that goes more positive, the magnesium sitting in the NMDA receptor for glutamate will bounce out. Now, uh, calcium can come into the cell and you can start raising the calcium level in the uh, postsynaptic neuron. And you want to raise it a little bit so it gets the message and does whatever it has to do. But if you get excessive amounts of calcium going in here, you can overactivate this neuron and cause it to go into apoptosis. The enzyme that does it is they got a perfect name, calpain. Calcium activated has painful consequences. Okay. And this is what I was talking about earlier with regard to the glucose type 4 glucose transporters on the neurons. You need insulin to get this GLUT4 to work, okay? Coming across the blood-brain barrier and the endothelial cells, you just got GLUT1. So glucose goes right across that. You don't need any energy. You don't need any insulin, okay? Glucose type 3, they'll just let glucose come into this uh, hippocampal neuron, and that's all perfect and beautiful. But because you've got insulin resistance in a person eating a high-fat diet, they can't get enough glucose into these brain cells. And that's going to have major consequences for these brain cells. It's going to cause a lot of them to die. Okay, so here's how people become stupid. This is one of the mechanisms of becoming stupid with diabetes. Here you have the mitochondria located within one of your neurons, let's say in the hippocampus. Here's your endoplasmic reticulum, which is the calcium storage center. It's the organelle that stores calcium inside a neuron. It's the main one. There's a little bit of calcium elsewhere, but that's the main one. All right, so like we talked about, you see a couple coyotes, three coyotes in the forest they start walking towards you you're going to ramp up neuronal activity very fast. And the way it does it is the endoplasmic reticulum releases calcium. This calcium passes from the endoplasmic reticulum into the mitochondria. This location where they're closely opposed to each other is called the MAM, mitochondrial uh, associated membranes of the endoplasmic reticulum. And simultaneously there should be glucose coming in from the glute fours, but these glute fours are blocked because of insulin resistance. And because of that, you can't get enough glucose. Well, really, it runs through glycolysis, gets converted to pyruvate. You can't get the substrate into the mitochondria. But the endoplasmic reticulum doesn't realize that because our ancestors didn't need all this fat. They didn't have all this insulin resistance. So it keeps on pumping calcium into this mitochondria until it will precipitate. And that can lead the cell to die. If the cell loses its mitochondria, it dies. Oh, I didn't even have my, my, my microphone right next to me. Gosh, we,
0: why didn't can I do that? Just, we can hear you just fine, though.
2: You heard me just fine, though. Okay, good. All right. Um, so now, so that was a key point. That'll destroy those mitochondria and cause those brain cells to die. It's a big deal, They'll progressively lose brain cells. And, you know, the more cognitively impaired the person gets, the, the less likely they'll ever turn things around. All right, adding salt is a minor. So dietary fat's the main contributor to insulin resistance, but these are additional things that contribute to it. If you've got, you know, dietary salts, a vasoconstrictor, it'll decrease the blood supply of the tissues. But the main thing is when you eat too much sodium, you will impair the plasma membrane gradients in your cells. You'll have a tendency to accumulate more sodium in the cell, to void out more potassium in your urine. The net result is because you've dissipated your plasma membrane sodium gradients, you're less able to pump that calcium out, meaning that you're going to have prolonged activation of those neurons, increasing the likelihood they're going to have metabolic rate overload relative to oxygen glucose delivery and go into apoptosis. The same thing with the insulin resistance being combined with these effects. You're more at risk for, you know, that's the Peter Rogers theory of dementia. Um, I've talked about it before, but the key thing is you got those glucose type four transporters, so you can't get the glucose in. Okay. So I just making the point, dietary, excessive dietary salt causes increased insulin resistance. Then the next thing is deficiency of magnesium. Typical American is low in magnesium and they're low in potassium. Guess what? That's because the plant-based diet gives you the good stuff. It gives you the potassium. It gives you the magnesium. Okay. And it's low in sodium versus the processed food is the opposite. It's high in sodium. It's low in potassium and magnesium. So it's all bad. All right. So potassium, these are just a couple more papers showing all these artificial sweeteners also increase the risk of diabetes. Stay away from all that junk. Okay. It's good to be simple. I'm going to say at the end of this lecture, you want to be like Adam and Eve, but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. Um, That's the way to be optimize your health. MTOR, like insulin, promotes fat storage. Um, And it also leads to activation of MTOR, all the high fat food, the animal foods. And those also will increase insulin resistance, okay? And in general, these are like two phases of life, like a seesaw. A maintenance phase, which is really where you want to spend most of your time, especially as a middle-aged and older adult, you exercise, you activate something called the AMPK pathway. And what that means is once you've exercised, you've burned up a lot of energy in your cells, ATP, so to speak. And they say, hey, we need to, we can't be growing and dividing right now. We need to just restore our energy levels. That's good. That's what you want. And you sleep better. Everything is perfect. Okay. And these psychological habits of love, friendship, religion, attitude of gratitude, having a purpose in life, all of that stuff um, lowers your stress level. And that also helps optimize your insulin sensitivity. All of this stuff is bad. Lack of sleep, insomnia, raises cortisol, increase insulin resistance. All the meat, the excess iron, excess fat, they activate mTOR. And that increases your risk of having problems with insulin resistance. And cognitive impairment down the road. The main thing I worry about with mTOR is it increases your risk of cancer, okay? If you're 20 years old and you're a bodybuilder, you know, you get a little more creatine from meat. You get a bit of an anabolic effect. I can see a young athlete wanting some for that reason, okay? But you get older, you get in your 30s, unless you're a professional athlete, I would not want the risk of it. That's why I, I don't need any meat at all, zero. Um, and then watch out for these estrogenics. I'll talk about these estrogenic chemicals. They're a much bigger deal than people realize. Okay, so this is just some paper talking about how increased mTOR causes insulin resistance. It also accelerates the rate at which you reach the Hayflick limit, meaning that it accelerates aging. Typical somatic cell in your body, meaning a non-germ cell, not your ovaries or your testicles and uh, not your stem cells in some locations. They can only divide about 60 times and then they go into senescence. They just die. So you don't want that. It's because they start burning through the telomeres, the ends that are like, uh, like a shoelace with the cap tip. And what that means is a Chromosome shortens it at every cell division, and as you progressively shorten it, you start shortening it into uh, DNA sequences that you need for essential proteins. This is just a nonstick pot, uh, P- PFOA, um, perfluoro octanoic acid. That's also toxic to pancreatic base cells. I would never cook on nonstick uh, containers for that reason. Also, this is on your cell phones because it's a weird chemical. It's got tons of fluorines on it. In a sense, it's got a skeleton of carbons, and it's got a, um, a skin, if you will, of fluorides, and um, that makes it uniquely—it's not only lipophobic; it's also uh, hydrophobic. So you don't—it's able to block out both water and oil. Uh, but what I'm saying is, rip your hands off before you eat. Otherwise, you got some of that on your fingers. Okay, here's the endocrine disruptors. These are all bad. All these things like bisphenol A and all the plastics, phthalates—you should, you know, you don't want that getting into your food. Um, you can't completely avoid these things, but avoid them to the extent that you can. Um, like you never would want to like, you know, put a baby bottle in a microwave or something. That'd be totally stupid. You're heating up the plastic into the, the baby formula, you know? Um, let's see what else. These can be toxic to the beta cell mass, decrease insulin sensitivity. Uh, yeah. So y- you don't want these things. And they're also, it ends up, turns out they're toxic to your brain cells too. This was I thought was interesting paper. Endocrine disruptors also function as nervous disruptors and can be renamed he's saying they should be renamed. By the way, this guy, Jill's Eric Saralini, he's one of the most famous researchers in the world for endocrine disrupting chemicals. Trust me, he's a big he's a big dog in the field of endocrine disruption. And this is an incredible statement. What he's saying is we should rename these chemicals instead of just calling them endocrine disruptors or primarily estrogen disrupting chemicals. They are brain cell disrupting chemicals, okay? They're not only poisonous to your hormonal system, they're poisonous to your brain. That's a big deal. Okay. And a lot of them are also thyroid inhibitors. They're toxic. The reason why there's so many of these estrogenic chemicals is because from a company's point of view, they're perfect. They've got a benzene ring, an aromatic ring. Okay. And that has incredible shelf life. You can leave it on a shelf for four years. Companies want long shelf life. And then it has a phenol group, a hydroxyl group coming off the benzene ring. That combination of a benzene ring with a hydroxyl group is called a phenol. And that's antimicrobial, antifungal. That's exactly what they want. Long shelf life antimicrobial, antifungal. So you don't got mold growing in their cosmetic product they sell to you. So while this is good as a preservative for the corporation, their product doesn't spoil and get returned to them. It's bad for you, the consumer, because it's toxic to your endocrine system, increasing your risk of breast cancer, making you fat, and also increasing your risk of insulin, diabetes problems. Here's atrazine. Atrazine, and here's this guy, Hayes, Tyrone Hayes. He's the guy who uh, did the research showing how uh, atrazine has such a strong estrogenic effect. It'll turn the uh male frogs into female frogs <laughs> okay that's a pretty powerful estrogenic effect and here's the sad disgusting picture here that's the two brother frogs from the same litter you know you know making the two-back beast over there um, and do the atrazine effect okay so anyways he got he got all oh, the, the the companies came after him because they didn't like him telling everybody the truth about atrazine <laughs> that's another reason why I don't eat that stuff I would never eat you know that uh, non-organic corn no way. Um, that also sometimes gets sprayed on golf courses. That's one of the reasons why I'm not that enthusiastic for golf. People say, why don't you take up golf? I'm like, yeah, right. So I can inhale and I don't think so. All right, here's Roy Taylor. He's the guy who won the Banting Award in 2012, and he's the big proponent of what a big deal fat was. And he would measure the fat in the liver, and he could measure how the fat amounts in the liver would decrease as the patients were losing weight, eating a low-fat diet. And he actually could cure all the early type two diabetics. All right. And he has this metaphor he makes to a bicycle. I'm not going to get into all the metaphor, but the bottom line is here's a quote by Roy Taylor, winner of the Banting Award in 2012, meaning that he was declared the best researcher in the entire world in 2012 for diabetes. He said type two diabetes is a simple condition of fat excess to which some people are more susceptible than others. So some are more susceptible. That's the idea of the fat threshold. Some people don't develop diabetes as early, like one person will get diabetes when they have a BMI of 28. Another person won't get a diabetes until they have a BMI of 35. Another person will need a BMI of 40 before they get diabetes. But fat is the main excess dietary fat is the main cause of insulin resistance. Okay, and so as you can imagine from that statement, what I think of the ketogenic low carb carnivore diet <laughs> for diabetes, I think is absolutely stupid. Okay, all right. Now here's some things that people don't know about. Oral aluminum is toxic to pancreatic beta cells, and there's a lot of aluminum in things. It's put into water because it's a so-called clarifier, but it increases the risk of diabetes. You don't want aluminum in your water. That's why I like a reverse osmosis filter on my kitchen sink. Um, I actually live in a place where aluminum's is low. Um, here's some things that cause insulin resistance. We talk about dietary saturated fat being the worst type of fat, but the other fats are bad too. Uh, omega-6 fats are also especially bad. Um, they have, they're more prone to lipid peroxidation, formation of hydroxy non and all. Tetsubori Yamashima, the Japanese guy, wrote all the papers on this, including um, how they're toxic to the pancreatic beta cells. We talk about excessive dietary sodium, which comes from a processed food diet, a lack of dietary potassium and magnesium because those come from plants. This comes from processed food. It's often used on meat, too, to flavor it and to preserve it. Excess animal protein. That's going to lead to elevated blood cholesterol activation of mTOR, and that worsens insulin resistance, okay? Excessive fructose, as we talk about, it'll bypass the regulatory steps in the liver because it almost all is processed by the liver. And then it leads to fatty liver. That leads to liver insulin resistance, which leads to fasting hyperglycemia, leads to elevated blood lipids, and more diabetes, okay? Excessive alcohol, because it's, alcohol and fructose are kind of very similar in terms of their metabolism. Alcohol does additional things that are bad, But it's also a major promoter of fatty liver, as is excessive uh, fructose from processed foods. Okay, dairy. Dairy is especially associated with autoimmune reaction causing type 1 diabetes. Like that's more common in kids, but it's also related to type 1.5 diabetes. Okay, I actually had a conversation with a medical student. And this was only about, you know, a year ago. And here's this guy. He's a medical student. He's, He's a good student in his medical school class. And he did not know the association of dairy with type 1. That's what I'm telling you about. He's a guy who you would think of all people, a medical student would know about type one diabetes, which he has being associated with dairy. He did not know that. He had this shocked look in his face. when I told him that he goes, he goes, I still drink milk. Not a smart move, pal. Okay. F minus in the water. We talk about F minus is mitochondrial toxin. And that's another thing I was getting at is just like sat fat, especially in fat in general, causing mitochondrial dysfunction with subsequent insulin resistance and reversal of electron transport. Well, guess what? A lot of these other things that are toxic to mitochondria, they also increase your risk of insulin resistance. So you want to avoid them. And what I'm also saying here, what am I doing here? I'm telling you the causes of diabetes, the causes of insulin resistance. So if you have somebody who has diabetes, they should look at this list and say, gee, I shall never drink another drop of alcohol. Gee, I will never have another drop of oil put into my body. Okay, I'm never going to eat animal foods. I'm not going to add salt to my food. I'm going to get the F minus out of my water. Okay. I'm going to learn to manage my stress better. Um, I'm going to get my sleep. I'm never going to eat caffeine. See what I'm getting as this for me is tremendous reason for hope. Once you start seeing the causes, you can avoid all these things. So do it, eat your plant foods, get your potassium and your magnesium, get your exercise That increases insulin sensitivity. It has the same effect as glucose type four successfully interacting with insulin. Okay. Avoid the excessive dietary iron and thus reduce your oxidative stress. Um, And then watch out for these mitochondrial inhibitors. On that previous slide, I gave you about 25 of them. You can avoid all of those, almost completely all of them. A few of them, you can't completely avoid them, but you can largely avoid them. Avoid circa inhibitors, which tends to be anything that smells bad. Um, This is just a little more detail about the same things I just talked about, if anybody wants to read it. Um, Okay, and then what I sort of said earlier, what's my general rule of thumb? Try to live like Adam and Eve, you know, men and women should help each other. We should be eating plant foods. If you look at Genesis 129, then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree, which has fruit, it shall be food for you. We're designed to eat plant foods. Okay. Um, And then the story is that, well, after Noah and the flood, the flood for 40 days, had wiped out the plant foods. So then they had to eat animal foods after that. And then we have to, I don't want to get into all that stuff, but the point I'm saying is live like Adam and Eve. Uh, you know, but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. Keep it simple. All these chemicals from processed food and things that store on a shelf for a long time, they're not good for you. So anyways, hope that's helpful.
0: That was very helpful. Thank you very much. Everybody click like for that wonderful presentation from Dr. Rogers. We're going to now bring some questions up from the audience. And the first one is from Pilar. Well, my glyceoide hemoglobin is elevated 5.88. And the doctor told me I am pre-diabetic. I weigh 121 and 5.4 height. I eat a whole food plant-based SOS-free diet. Should I be concerned?
2: Thank you. Yeah. Well, that hemoglobin A1C is a little bit high there, consistent with pre-diabetes. And what I would do is, in my experience, most people think they're eating better than they really are. For example. Um, a lot of people are eating high fat foods, even though they're plant-based are still eating a lot of fat. So I would reduce the percent of your calories from dietary fat. I would avoid anything with iron in it. Like I said, that contributes to oxidative stress. I would avoid anything with glyphosate in it. As I mentioned, I would avoid anything with that, um, uh, non-organic corn sprayed with atrazine. All these estrogenic things are going to make you tend to gain weight, which is going to tend to make you more hyperlipidemic. All of that would worsen your, uh, insulin resistance. I would try to make sure you're getting a significant amount of exercise, walking a lot. That'll help to reduce your, uh, your hemoglobin A1C. So I would go through that list of all the things I mentioned there, causing insulin resistance. Make sure you're not exposed to aluminum more than you should be. And um, I think if you do that, your hemoglobin A1C would probably decrease. You can give it a try.
0: Right. And I think you had mentioned in some other lectures about how, you know, our blood cycles through, and, and everything kind of renews in, in maybe every three months. And so the A1C is going to of course reflect the past three months and it can take some time for it to show a difference. And what you were saying is even though she is not consuming oil in her diet, there are other plant-based oils and sources of fat. So, for example, you're talking about avocados, and I wouldn't
2: eat avocados. Never, I would never touch another one in my life. Mm-hmm. They they tend to often nowadays. It used to be a lot of people liked them. I first of all, I'm a low fat plan eater. I'm not a high fat plan eater. And the second thing is avocados, in particular, are one of the most heavily uh, sprayed with that new thing, APEL. I would stay as far away from that as I could. I went through the chem sheets on it. It's bad. Yeah, and
0: then and then even perhaps nuts and seeds. You're saying too.
2: I'm there's not a things. believer in nuts and seeds. I know a lot of people love nuts and seeds. I know a lot of people promote them. I know a lot of people will tell me there's so many papers saying good things about them. And here's what I would say. I like to look at old papers. Back in the old days, these corporations didn't have so much power. Nowadays, these corporations, they buy all the journals, they buy all the scientists, and they fund all these papers to say whatever they sell is great. If you go into like literature on caffeine, you'll see paper after paper saying how great caffeine is. Okay, then you go back to the older literature and then you ask yourself, what does it do? It elevates cortisol and catecholamines, So it has all those effects. So how could that be good for you? If you have a corporation and you own a journal and the scientist is dependent on that corporation to get their grant money, Every single paper they write is going to say that billion-dollar food is good for you, okay? I'm sorry, but that's reality. So that's why it's beneficial to go to the old papers and just look at basic physiology. What does cortisol do? What does catecholamines do? Okay, and when you go down that path, you know, I'm not a fan of eating all these uh, high-fat foods, nuts and seeds. I don't eat any of that stuff. I think there's a lot of omega-3 fats uh, in just regular plant foods. I've kind of gone through that. So And also, I think soy is a lousy food. I think the reason why soy is subsidized is to make people infertile, okay? It's a way to make low IQ people infertile. Now, people get offended if I say that, but that's based on a lot of research. You know, you study it, go read all those old papers, okay? I know people don't like that, but I think it's the truth, whether you like it or not. That's why I'm called the bad boy of veganism, all right? Same thing with atrazine, okay? I think the purpose of atrazine is to sterilize people, okay? Uh, it's a major endocrine-disrupting chemical, okay? And it makes people stupid. It's a mitochondrial inhibitor. Do you want to be eating that? No, it's toxic, okay? So that's another reason, too. I'm going to also say something. If you look at conventional medicine, in my opinion, I think conventional medicine is essentially stupid when it comes to chronic disease because they don't know anything about nutrition. They don't know anything about toxicology. And then I'm going to say the vegan community is a lot better. They know nutrition pretty well. But the vegan community, in my opinion, is screwing up for two reasons. Number one, they tend to not know anything about toxicology. And number two, there's this big sort of competition right now between the high-fat vegans and the low-fat vegans. And I think if you look at the data carefully, you're going to see that low-fat vegan is much better.
0: Right. So. Okay. Tennis and Yoga Girl sounds like somebody that is very active. I'm whole food, plant-based, no oil, four years. I lost 15 pounds with whole food, plant-based. I'm at a healthy weight, healthy BMI, exercise daily, no meds. Question, I'm having trouble getting to sleep. Is fresh fruit in the evening the problem?
2: Uh, I don't know. I doubt it. I've never heard of fresh fruit interrupting sleep. But there's a lot of things that can cause problems with sleep. I would go through that whole list of things that can cause sleep and figure out uh how you can help yourself i mean typical things i would do is make sure you don't have any bright lights in your room all right put low watt bulbs in the spot if you absolutely have to go into your bathroom at night you know before you go to bed the void have a low watt bulb in there okay things like that try not to spend time around bright lights it takes a couple of hours for your melatonin to ramp up so try to be away from bright lights at night figure out the temperature you like in your room some people will tell you most things you read they'll say you like it a little cool but i sometimes wonder about that because the cooler it is the more you have to, more uh, urine accumulates, the more likely you have to get up the void. So I kind of like it a little warm, even though I know not everybody agrees with that. I like it that way. I I get up less the void, I sleep better, okay? Other thing is, if you can turn off the Wi-Fi in your house, turn that off if you can. That's a mild effect. The other thing is, um, it opens up voltage-gated calcium channels in your brain, which is pretty mild by itself, but it adds up, okay? Don't have your cell phone near your head when you're sleeping, Uh, make your room pretty dark. Um, what other things I think help? Some people have trouble with MSG. MSG, you know, it's, uh, excitotoxin. A lot of food, even organic food has MSG in it. That's why I only eat single ingredient foods. They're not allowed to put MSG in there if there's a single ingredient. As soon as there's two ingredients, they can put MSG in the second ingredient and not have to mention it in the label. So I won't eat anything with, uh, two ingredients in it. Um, let's see what else. The only oatmeal I eat is plain oatmeal with water. Uh, And as soon as you have, Something other than plain oatmeal with all those flavorings, you can bet there's MSG in there. Uh, I won't eat any breads because there's almost always MSG and oil in there. Um, All of that helps. Um, Psychologically, too, I avoid stressful things at night. You know, I think news is a waste of time. Um, It just stresses you out. You can read what you need to read at some other time in the day to keep up with something, but you don't want to look at stressful things at night. What else? Uh, Making the two-back beast helps people to sleep before they go to bed uh let's see what else keep your bedroom only for sleeping and for romance not for uh anything else you shouldn't have tv electronics any of that stuff in your bedroom um if you exercise in the daytime that also helps you to sleep you said you exercise daily uh so those are all things that help
0: that sounds like a very good list and perhaps i don't know what time tennis girl is having the proof that perhaps not eating too close to bedtime may, it just may maybe the eating because we're trying to digest and sleep at the same time. That might be something. Okay. Uh, let's see. So Cardstid wanted to know, why doesn't oatmeal satisfy me in the morning? I need beans. Steel-cut oatmeal and cinnamon with, and berries seems to spike my blood sugar.
2: Well, The beans tend to be less processed, so they got a lot more fiber. When you process a food, you tend to remove a lot of fiber. So especially like an instant oatmeal will have the least amount of fiber. So it's not going to have a sustained uh, satisfaction of hunger. You're going to absorb the glucose from it more rapidly, whereas beans have tons of fiber. You get this prolonged, slow absorption of glucose, and that's what's called the second meal effect. You know, you eat beans for breakfast, you might not even feel like you need to eat lunch. So there's a good chance that that's what's doing it. That's probably what I would expect to be the most likely thing doing it.
0: Yeah, for, I I find that I if I eat oatmeal that I feel hungry right away, very soon after, and it doesn't satisfy me either. So I think that that's a that's a really uh, good thing to think about. Okay, let's see. Ann wants to know: Do smoothies stop weight loss, or is it what's in the smoothie?
2: Well, it would have to be whatever's in the smoothie is, is going to determine how healthy it is. Me personally, I don't like smoothies. I've had some people, I've even had some cancer patients say it helped them to improve their diet. It got them to eat all these plant foods they wouldn't otherwise eat. I don't really like it. I'll tell you why I don't like them because they're too loud. I hate the loud that blend so loud. Okay. And you know, I could wear those, you can wear those ear protectors and that makes it not so bad. So you don't want to go deaf, but I would just eat the foods. Um, so, And the more fiber, the better. When you when you run something through a smoothie, you're basically chopping up all that fiber that would otherwise be done by your teeth and your intestinal enzymes and would slow the absorption of the calories. So that's really the trade-off. You know, I, I get myself to eat whatever I'm supposed to eat anyways. I have no problem doing that. But I know some people, it helps them to go through this transition phase, making smoothies every day. Uh, if you eat low-fat food, the fastest way to lose weight is eat the low-fat food. 1% fat from potatoes, sweet potatoes. And white rice, you'll get skinny. You keep eating 1% fat in your calories. You get the vast majority of your calories from that. Other tricks you can do is, you know, eat the lowest calorie food first. You know, start your meal with your salad. That's got very, very low caloric density. So you start stretching that stomach with hardly any calories. You get satisfaction of hunger comes faster. Um, You can't survive on greens, though. They don't have enough calories to make you survive. But that pattern of eating will help you to make sure you always eat the salad. Because, like, for example, I'll, I'll eat my starch first after I work a long day. I work a OMAD diet, one meal a day diet. And I'll often just go right to my starch. And if I eat too much of that starch, I won't even want the salad, you know. So the benefit of eating the salad first is you know, otherwise might not eat it.
0: Yeah, that's a good strategy. That's what I do. So Mike want to know which is better, white or sweet potatoes? And also is brown rice better than white rice?
2: Um, well, first of all, on the rice, I prefer white rice. White rice has a much longer shelf life. There's some fat in the outer part of the brown rice that makes it spoil faster. In addition, brown rice is more likely to be contaminated by arsenic. And uh, when you make, convert it to white rice, you're sort of removing some of the outer part of it, and some of the fiber too, but you make it have less arsenic. And don't get me wrong, the amount of arsenic in rice is relatively small. I still eat rice about three, four times a week in comparison with... Um, like I would never eat chicken. Chickens got rice, uh, got arsenic much higher. And the reason is they would give arsenic antibiotics to the chickens because they had intestinal parasites. And then they found that the chicken would stay fresh looking on the shelves longer if it had gotten the arsenic antibiotics, so to speak. So they just keep on giving arsenic to these chickens. But then what happened is the chicken farmers sold the, ri- sold the chicken feces to the rice farmers. And that's how they got some arsenic into the rice farms, including the organic ones. So including the so-called best option California organic rice, there's some arsenic in it, but it's actually worse if you go in the Southeastern United States because they used to grow cotton. Cotton's a textile product so they could spray a lot more arsenic uh, pesticides on there because they had boll weevil insect problem. So I would not get rice from the Southeastern United States because it takes decades to clear that arsenic out of the soil. So I do eat rice. I eat organic white rice um, from states that, or from places that have low arsenic in the soil. Um, but it's, and then, so that's what I would say about rice, white rice, organic from low arsenic soil. As far as what's better, which potatoes, they're both good. White potatoes and sweet potatoes in a perfect world. I would say sweet potatoes are a little bit better food because sweet potatoes only have about four and a half percent of their calories from protein versus white potatoes have about eight or 9%. So I would like my dietary protein to be less. Um, I think you want to avoid protein overload to the extent you can um, I'll still eat beans sometimes because of the trade-off. There's so much fiber in beans that I like to eat beans. I actually usually have beans every night, but I don't eat. I, I, I probably eat more beans than I should. I think it's because I work so much because I only eat a one meal a day diet because it's convenient. If you eat two meals a day, it actually takes more time to eat. But the downside of that is and I probably don't need to eat so many beans, but it's convenient. they're always made for me. Uh, I usually don't even cook for myself. Uh, so anyways, as far as what's better, white or sweet potatoes, they're both good. But, um, sweet potatoes a little bit better in terms of the health, but they're both very good. I eat both of them all the time. Whenever they're there, I'll eat whatever's there.
0: Okay. Ava said, can you provide advice for parents with children who have diabetes?
2: Okay. Well, if the child has type one diabetes, which they probably have, if it's a young child, then I certainly would avoid any, any type of dairy products. And the same diet of a low fat starch based diet is going to help to optimize their insulin sensitivity. Okay. Um, you could also feed them fruits, and when I talk about feeding them fruits, that would especially relate to, there's there's these two young guys, um, one's name is like Bobby Bitteru, and the other guy's name is Cyrus Kumbada, and they, they have a thing called Mastering Diabetes, okay, and they are almost fruitarians, okay, but I do think there's a little tendency of fruit eating to make you fat if you're old. The other problem with fruit is they're so expensive. Fruit's expensive, and it doesn't store long, okay. But the only reason I mention that is because kids will sometimes be reluctant to eat so much starch. And so you can get them to eat fruit. I would buy it frozen probably, uh, but that's good. And the reason I go through all this is most of the time they tell people feed the kids some type of high-fat diet, and I think that's a big mistake. I think if you start studying, just start studying it yourself from what I've told you about the benefits of a starch-based diet and fruits also being good, and I think you're going to find that that creates – healthy people, and it works well for diabetes. It'll increase your insulin sensitivity.
0: Right. And we really didn't talk too much about type 1 diabetes, but would you say that that even somebody who is on medications, of course, insulin with uh, type 1 diabetes, that they could potentially reduce, they couldn't eliminate, of course, but maybe reduce the amount of insulin that they right. are taking? If They're they going to increase
2: have- their insulin sensitivity by avoiding excessive amounts of dietary fat, and that's beneficial because – because the insulin resistance causes problems in the other side of the body. It'll increase their risk down the future of atherosclerosis, of becoming impotent, of having heart disease, of having strokes, of being cognitively impaired, going into kidney failure. All those complications of diabetes are made worse by having high insulin resistance. And so you just eat the diet that humans are made to eat. There's not some miracle different diet. I don't believe in all this eat for your body type, eat for your blood type. I think it's a bunch of nonsense. All humans are designed to eat this low fat, low sodium, vegan diet. That's what our ancestors ate. They walked around all day looking for some food, eating plant foods.
0: Okay. Maria said, I have type 2 diabetes. I want to go whole food plant-based, but I get very shaky and weak if I don't eat every two hours. I wake up many mornings feeling so weak. What can I eat that won't drive up my glucose? I
2: wouldn't be so worried about driving up your glucose. I'd be thinking more on how can I reduce my insulin resistance and, you know, beans might be good for you. You get prolonged satisfaction of hunger with very few calories. The fiber will prolong that satisfaction of hunger. Um, that's, a, that's a good way to eat. And, again, work with your doctor and the same uh, previous person who had a kid with diabetes. Work with your doctor to titrate all your doses because whatever medications you're on, when you start eating more low-fat, plant-based, you're probably going to reduce your, your medication dosages significantly. So you need to coordinate that with your doctor so you're not over-treating yourself.
0: That's very good advice. I think, I think that we have answered all the questions, and I really wanted to uh, express my sincere gratitude to you, Dr. Rogers, uh, oh, you, you, for delving into the depths of diabetes mm-hmm. and for generously sharing your profound insights with our Green Warriors. Uh, I mean, you have just such extensive knowledge in nutrition research and, of course, you have an elevated understanding of diabetes far more than a lot of the endocrinologists do, and and you just have this in-depth look into the mechanisms behind it. So you have undeniably elevated our awareness of, of this critical health issue. Everybody, please click like to show your appreciation for what Dr. Rogers shared with us today. Dr. Rogers, please tell us about how Uh, what you do and how we can find you on social media
2: oh well i got a youtube channel peter rogers md where i post videos and um i've written a bunch of books too about nutrition you know probably if anybody ever wants to read my books i would say start out with two toes in a hot tub how to improve blood flow it's sort of a trilogy that then is you know followed by hot topics in nutrition and journey to optimal health my books tend to be more complicated because i got more time i go into a lot more details about you know nutrition and pathophysiology and toxicology i have fun writing them too you know i try to have this attitude that it's going to be too difficult for anybody to kind of read through all this concentrated stuff So i kind of tell some jokes and i build i tell stories i i actually write a lot like plato's republic whereby plato was really disappointed uh, playwright who became a philosopher and he would write in the form of a Republic whereby there'd be conversations. I'll we'll have a bunch of people talking to each other. You know, one of them will quite often be a person who wants a high fat diet and I'll have then a low fat person talking to them. So I just try to make it fun. But anyways, I do this as a hobby, you know, because it's so powerful. You know, I spent all these years training to be a doctor and I'm like, here's where all the real information is. Like I didn't learn this in medical school. I could have get my parents alive a lot longer. So I was kind of frustrated by that. That kind of pissed me off. And I'm myself, too, I got fat in my 30s. I'm like, how could this happen? And nobody could help me until I started reading on my own. And I figured out all this stuff from reading, you know, about the benefit of a plant based diet and in particular a starch based diet and stuff. So it's, it's valuable information. I can tell you out of everything I learned, I'm board certified in three fields, you know, um, and I've been, I've been a doctor over 30 years. I can tell you the most valuable thing you could possibly know about health is humans are made to eat a starch based diet.
0: Wow. So what would you say your final take-home message for our Green Warriors
2: is? Well, I think you'll find the the way, the way populations that eat this way, they're the ones that avoid diabetes. All these rice-eating Asians, they didn't have a problem with diabetes. Now that they're starting to eat more like Westerners, more meat and more oil, they're getting fat and sick too. And then the other thing I'd say is don't just stop there. Start learning about toxicology, estrogenic chemicals and whatnot. Because these estrogenic chemicals are fat storage hormones. They make you fat. Because some people say, well, I do everything right. Why am I still fat? I think that's often a big part of it. If you're eating all this atrazine and these other estrogenic chemicals and rubbing all these personal care products full of estrogen on yourself, you're going to have a hard time controlling your weight.
0: That's, that's good to know. And I hope that we'll have you back to explore that in more depth. So green warriors, tell us what you're going to remember from this presentation and interview. There's a lot of things to learn. And I think that, uh, if you, you could probably rewatch it a few times and still pick up some more pearls of wisdom. I wanted to also thank Jess Tess Voice because she did the countdown and she did the promos and she's been a really great help to me getting the word out about this broadcast. And Jess Tess Voice, tell us who's coming up next.
1: Ever wonder if foods truly do play a role in preventing, treating, and reversing disease? Come learn the most common disconnects between diet and health we often mistakenly make. Join us on Wednesday, October 18th, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Be Green with Amy Live.
0: Of course, I want to give a special thank you to all of you, you green warriors that are tuning in. And as a special thank you, I'm offering you five free recipes. So if you go to my website, begreenwithamy.com slash join, then you can also get five Free recipes sent to you so that you can either adopt this lifestyle or expand your uh, recipe collection from it. And I would like to invite all of you to comment in the comments. You can type in my tagline, and Dr. Rogers is going to say the last word with me. And when I like to thank you again, Dr. Rogers and Green Warriors, and until I see you all again, remember be strong, be well, and be green
1: Green. (laughs) thank you
0: dr rogers thanks green warriors
1: now you can listen to be green with amy expert interviews wherever you go listen while walking meal prepping or traveling find be green with amy on apple google alexa amazon or virtually anywhere you find podcasts be strong be well and be green
0: with